0: based on methods of molecular, cellular, systems, or organismic biology. Submissions are due June 15th. Visit science.org slash eppendorf to apply today. This is the Science Podcast for February 18th, 2022. I'm Sarah Crespi. Each week we talk about the most interesting news and research from science and the sister journals. First up, we have staff news writer Meredith Wadman. She wrote this week about how COVID-19 takes a serious toll on the heart and blood vessels, a full year after recovery. After that, we have researcher Mike Kestemont. We talk about his work using methods from ecology, usually used to estimate missing species, to estimate missing manuscripts. And more generally, we talk about the big question, what percentage of artifacts has endured from human history? It's been known for a while that COVID 19 affects the cardiovascular system, the heart and blood vessels during illness. A new and large study has just come out that found some long lasting effects on the cardiovascular system in people who have recovered from COVID 19 up to a year later. Meredith Wadman is a staff writer for Science, and she wrote about these findings this week. Hi, Meredith. Hi, Sarah. This is a a large study, over 150,000 U.S. veterans that had contracted COVID.
1: Yes, and in addition, there were 5.6 million in a control group that was examined during the pandemic that did not get COVID-19, and another 5.8 million in a separate historical control group from 2017. And this was a huge data lift by researchers at the VA St. Louis Healthcare System, and Washington University in St. Louis, and it appeared in Nature Medicine.
0: So what exactly did the researchers find that was different in the cardiovascular systems of
1: people in this study that had had COVID? They looked at 20 different cardiac outcomes from various sorts of arrhythmias, to heart attacks, to congestive heart failure, to strokes. I mean, name it in the cardiovascular system, that is the heart and blood vessels, what can go wrong? And the rates of all of these conditions were increased in people who had had COVID-19 compared to control groups that had not had it. And what was striking is they looked at people who only had mild illness and were never hospitalized. And although they didn't have as increased risk for any of the conditions as people who were either hospitalized or in ICU, they did nonetheless have an elevated risk.
0: So there was some correlation with severity of disease and this increased risk. Did some of the other factors also pop out of this data, like if the person had a previously diagnosed condition that would make COVID-19 harder on them, or if they were older, you know, those also correlate with increased risk?
1: Well, they accounted for those. They used statistical tools to sort of subtract out the effects of, say, someone being 60 and obese versus 35 and healthy. And what they found is that COVID was an equal opportunity Disruptor of the cardiovascular system one year after having had it. Young people and old people, obese people and people with a normal body mass index, people who were smokers and who were not, they were all experiencing these elevated rates of heart and blood vessel ailments. I also want to point out that the analysis looked at people who had COVID basically between March 2020 and early January 2021. So the vast, vast majority of people whose data were analyzed for this study were unvaccinated.
0: So do we know if being vaccinated and having a breakthrough infection, you know, would you be slightly more protected from these longer lasting cardiovascular effects?
1: You know, this study can't answer that question because of the way it was structured.
0: What about people who were asymptomatic? Positive test, no symptoms. Do we know where they fall, you know, in this risk analysis?
1: We don't because this study examined and analyzed data from people who sought out care in the Veterans Affairs system, indicating that they were symptomatic.
0: Can you put this risk in context for us? How does the risk of having had COVID compare with other causes of problems with the heart? and blood vessels, you know, like smoking.
1: It's striking. One physician and biostatistician at the Cleveland Clinic, Larissa Tarashenko, who I interviewed, indicated that she thinks prior COVID-19 will become the leading risk factor for poor cardiovascular outcomes well ahead of something like smoking or being overweight or obese.
0: Oh, wow. So basically the risk is higher for past COVID-19 patients than if they have these other health factors. Can you talk about some of the specific risks? These numbers are really striking.
1: Yeah, I can talk about specific risks, although I can't list the increased risk for all 20 conditions, obviously. But you could take, for instance, there's an increased risk of stroke, a 52% increased risk in people with prior COVID-19 12 months out compared to people who didn't have it. There's a 49% risk of these teeny tiny strokes called transient ischemic attacks of so 49% elevated risk. The chance of heart failure is elevated by 72%. You know, that is in some ways less instructive than saying, because, you know, if for instance, your risk is like a teeny tiny percentage and, and you say it's elevated twice. Well, it went from 1% to 2%. Someone might roll their eyes and say big deal. But what is important that these investigators did that many studies do not is they also calculated the absolute number of additional events in the group that had COVID-19. So you can look and say that for every 1,000 people who had COVID-19, four more people had strokes than did in the corresponding control group. And when they added up all the different conditions and ailments they looked at, they found overall that there were 45 more of any of the 20 conditions per 1000 people who had covid-19 a year ago than in the control groups that did not
0: okay well, let's turn now to some caveats what are some concerns about this work
1: one thing i'd like to flag is that this study has limitations one is that it was retrospective that means they went back through records of events that had already happened and that You know, if there was, for instance, a misdiagnosis in the record, if some faulty information was recorded, they can't check and root that out. The way you could be much more careful in a prospective study, looking forward and having your groups of patients and monitoring them as they progress.
0: The other issue with this study is the sample itself. This is veterans, U.S. veterans, and it's a wide age range, but it's predominantly men's records that were examined.
1: Yes. 90% of people whose data was analyzed in both the control groups and the infected groups were male.
0: And we also know that men in some studies have shown to have stronger effects of COVID-19 on their body.
1: This is true. And I'd like to point out that 71% to 76% of the participants whose data were analyzed were white.
0: So a lot of this bias in the sample could be
1: tackled with some
0: statistical approaches?
1: Yeah. So the researchers used their statistical toolbox to, in essence, subtract out the skewing of the sample to being white and male and older, so that you can see more or less a pure effect of just COVID-19, regardless of what color of your skin, how old you are, and what gender you are. So that's why these findings? All of them. There's still a potential for hidden bias, but largely are likely to be applicable across all races and age groups and both genders.
0: Okay, so there's a couple problems with the initial data set. You know, it's a retrospective study, but the size of the study I feel like really does support this idea that there are serious, long-lasting risks associated with having had COVID-19.
1: Yes, the huge numbers in the study make it a very powerful piece of evidence suggesting that its conclusions are warranted.
0: And what about the variants? Do we know what variant most of these people were likely to have had at that time?
1: Because enrollment stopped in January 2021, we can pretty much assume it was original Wuhan or perhaps alpha beginning to appear. But none of the problematic variants we wrestled with in 2021
0: And can we call this long COVID? You know, when I think about long COVID, I think, oh, you still have some symptoms. You have brain fog, loss of sense of smell, fatigue. Does this still fit in the category of long COVID?
1: Yes, there are cardiac pieces of long COVID, such as palpitations, a racing heart, other abnormalities like occasional chest pain or tightness dizziness upon suddenly standing called postural hypotension. So clearly the cardiovascular system is a piece of long COVID.
0: Do we know anything about the mechanism for the effect of COVID-19 or this coronavirus on the heart and the blood vessels? Do we
1: know what's at work here? Well, the scientists who wrote the paper have this long list of possible mechanisms. They are everything from The tendency of the blood to clot more readily, possibly induced by infection, lingering damage from direct viral invasion of the heart, elevated levels of these chemical messengers called cytokines that can gin up inflammation and lead to scarring of the heart, even persistent virus in compartments or places that the immune system can't effectively get at. But it needs to be stressed that these are all. Hypotheses and that none of them is a slam dunk, and there's probably multiple mechanisms at work.
0: This is only one year of data. Do we say that this is going to be a long standing problem for these people, or could their risks
1: go down? So, for people who are afflicted, it will depend on the condition. Heart failure doesn't go away, chest pain, which was another example of a condition they looked at might be transient. So really among the 20 conditions, if you have one, it depends on what it is as to whether it might go away. But for those who had COVID a year ago and going forward are still unimpacted, I think it will be a time will tell situation whether their risk decreases with time.
0: So kind of looking out into the future, what is that gonna mean when so much of the
1: world have had COVID-19? it's going to be a significant increased burden on health systems and on people with pure COVID-caused cardiovascular disease. It's a gigantic issue. Globally, it's going to take a major toll. And that's just the sobering reality. All right. Thank you so much, Meredith. Sure thing, Sarah.
0: Meredith Wadman is a staff news writer for Science. You can find a link to the story we discussed at science.org podcast. Don't touch that dial. Up next, we have researcher Mike Kestemont. We talk about what percentage of ancient art, books, even tools may survive the centuries. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the Eppendorf and Science Prize for Neurobiology. Are you or one of your colleagues doing great neuroscience? If so, then we encourage you to apply for the prestigious Eppendorf and Science Prize for Neurobiology, an international prize which honors young scientists for outstanding neurobiological research based on methods of molecular, cellular, systems, or organismic biology. Submissions are due June 15th. Visit science.org Eppendorf to apply today. Records of ancient human history, books, sculptures, paintings, artifacts that we have with us today are just a sample of what was created long ago. How much of a sample, though? How random or biased is the sample that's passed down? Mike Kestemont is an associate professor in the Department of Literature at the University of Antwerp. He and his colleagues write this week in Science about using methods from ecology to estimate the loss of these materials. Hi, Mike. Hey. So this work uses a model borrowed from ecology. It's called the Unseen Species Model. And the hope here is to make estimates of unseen artifacts, basically what we don't have today, what hasn't endured. Is this a long-standing question in the field? Is this something people have been wondering about for a long time?
2: Just the question, how large the sample is that has survived of these texts is one of the classic puzzles in my field. I specialize in, in medieval literature. I've been fascinated by this question since, since the time I studied. So now for the first time, we have the feeling that we're getting closer to an answer and that is really uh, exciting.
0: Yeah. So what does the unseen species model in ecology do for ecologists? Does it tell them when things have gone extinct or what's hiding behind the bushes?
2: I'm not an ecologist, but uh, one of the few things that I learned about ecology is that eco is a crucial thing for them. They want to know how many distinct species live in a certain area because that allows them to, to monitor that area. For instance, in the event of dramatic events like wildfires, what these people do is they set up a bioregistration campaign. They literally start counting uh, animals for a, a certain period, like maybe a couple of days, maybe months, maybe years. In the end, no matter how long They are counting. The problem is that they always miss species, so species that are for some reason hard to observe. The classic example that we give is snow leopards, which are really hard to observe. And what they have developed over many decades is various statistical methods to try and correct for their own observations, because they know that they are underestimating the biodiversity in a certain area. And an unseen species model is going to do exactly that. So on the basis of the data that you have observed, it's going to give you an estimate of the number of animals or other species that you are likely to have missed during your campaign.
0: What you did here was take the math that they use for that, the statistics, the observation, the sampling ideas, and then applied it to narratives about King Arthur and the Round Table from medieval times. Why was this the particular focus of the work?
2: So first of all, it's my own field. It's a field that I did my PhD in, so I'm a, I'm a big fan. <laughs> okay. Uh, secondly, I think that this, the genre, if you will, of we call them chivalric and heroic stories from the, the medieval period, is representative. So we have this formula, this unseen species model, that we can apply without any changes directly to the data as we have it for these manuscripts and texts. The an- analogy that we build on is that we see a literary work For instance, a a Grail romance about King Arthur, we see that as a species. And then we have a number of manuscript copies that survive from medieval times, because often these texts survive in multiple copies. What we can then do is take the number of copies that we have for a work and plug that into the formula as the number of sightings for a species, uh, as it were. So that makes this analogy very powerful, that we don't have to change anything about statistics. We can just plug the medieval data right in.
0: Did you catalog all the surviving works about this particular topic or did you sample or did you break it up into different categories like how did you
2: start Well we started from the medieval literature in my own language which is Dutch so Middle Dutch and then we did a, a small scale study a couple of years back already and then we got certain results and we were we were happy with them and they they seemed uh, interesting the question that we immediately had was how these numbers would relate to The numbers that we have for for different languages, like neighboring languages, such as Middle English or Middle French or Middle High German. And that's how we expanded the project. We kept on adding more languages, involving more colleagues to get an international uh, comparison also.
0: Were you able to say, oh, well, this percentage has survived?
2: In general, what we observed is that about 9% of the documents survived. That estimate is, in fact, in line with what book historians have found in recent times uh, already.
0: And what book historians do is they say, well, we have a catalog and we also have what survived from the catalog. And that's, that's kind of proving that we have a, a percentage left that we can kind of rely on.
2: Exactly. So in rare cases, we have still the, the composition of the medieval library. And then we can simply check how many books we still have. And that gives you like a rough estimate. The problem is that these catalogs, as we have them, they're biased in themselves Often they would like emit less expensive books, for instance. So the, the lists all, themselves already were, were biased. They also come from like very uh, privileged environments like monasteries. So you don't really know how, how well these numbers would scale to other collection uh, environments. And that's why it's interesting that we now have uh, an additional method to verify these numbers using uh, alternative means.
0: Does this number vary from place to place?
2: What we saw is that for... number of works or the actual stories that survived there, we see very um, big differences across the languages that we observed. And what we saw, for instance, is that the survival rate for Middle Dutch is very similar to that for uh, Middle French. Middle English and Old English, their survival ratio was really small, surprisingly small even. And then we saw a pretty high survival ratio for German and also to island literature, namely Iceland and uh, Ireland. And that was uh, pretty interesting The difference there.
0: Yeah, I thought that was really interesting that you talk about island ecology, which holds a special place in a lot of biologists' hearts.
2: Exactly. Yeah.
0: And then island liter- literature. Can you kind of draw that parallel out for us?
2: What we know, first of all, from ecology, again, I'm not an ecologist, but I, I know that this is a very famous in ecology, is that islands are interesting in ecology because, for instance, they feature a higher endemic species richness. We know that islands are better able to conserve their biological heritage in a way. And the analogy that we build on is that there are indications that this might also be true for their cultural heritage instead of their biological heritage.
0: So these islands have something different going on in the ecology of their books that could lead to higher preservation rates?
2: Why were these island literatures preserved so well? A part of the, the answer there could be that these island literatures had a higher evenness. That's again a concept that we borrow from ecology, implying uh, in our case that they're, on average, the number of manuscript copies per text was more even. So what you see in the continental literatures of the time, for instance, or in some of these literatures, you see that a large number of manuscript copies in fact are associated with just a couple of texts and then you have a long tail of texts that are not copied as frequently and what we see is that on these island literatures there's just a more even distribution of copies over works and this is crucial because it will also make these island literatures more resistant to random loss so whenever you throw out a single manuscript the chance that you lose a text is actually uh, smaller which is interesting
0: These parallels in terms of the statistical methods seem to be working. But what about the fact that the loss is not necessarily random? There could be a library fire or people could decide to burn all of a book or they don't make many copies of books in a certain culture. You know, how does that reflect it in the results that you could get from using this type of analysis?
2: We know from book history, for instance, that some books were or some types of books were just more likely to be destroyed. So one of the classic examples there is that we know that illustrated books, so books with pictures, overall must have had a higher survival probability. Now, luckily, this formula that we use is what they call a non-parametric statistical formula. And we know that it is robust to such differences. At the same time, it's a bit of a pity because we know that this method also doesn't give us insight yet into the nature of the loss. And I think that this will be an important extension of our work that now in in future years, we try to also explain some of the loss figures that we have obtained.
0: So I immediately want to know if this can be used for, I don't know, Maya codices or manuscripts from Library Cave in China. I mean, is this something you see that could be expanded in that way?
2: We do argue that applicability of this method is is far wider than just our little case study in medieval literature. You could say it can be applied to any sort of cultural assemblage, as they called it, that is hyper diverse and undersampled. The only thing that you really need is you you have to be able to count species, so to speak. So you need to have discrete entities that you can identify. But as soon as you can do that, you can start applying it across many fields, uh, we believe.
0: Yeah. So beyond books, beyond manuscripts, we could do Coins. Coins. Stone tools.
2: Yeah, painters. You can go pretty far with it, I think. Yeah, that's interesting. So in fact, this Chao one method, there's nothing specific about it to uh, ecology. It's derived from um, under a very general statistical framework. And that explains its at least in theory, it's very wide applicability.
0: You're able to ground truth your findings. How many of these narratives remain based on comparing it with what book historians have done. But other... Things like we talked about stone tools or coins might be harder to kind of do that with. What does it mean, you know, when you do learn about the percentage loss? Like, what can you do with that information?
2: So first of all, I I think this is curiosity uh, driven research. So it's just interesting to find out because we had no clue, I think, before. So that makes it very uh, exciting. Secondly, I do think it's interesting because it puts a a confidence interval on history, so to speak. You get an idea of of the bandwidth of the uh, survival. And also, it tells you something about how strong trends have to be before you can accept them for the whole population that you can observe uh, anymore. So that I find very interesting that now we know, for instance, I don't know, half of the Middle Dutch literature has survived. That tells you something about the statistical power that you can get uh, from tests that you do apply to the surviving data. And I do expect to see some some work um, capitalizing on that idea in, in the coming years now.
0: All right. Thank you so much, Mike. It was a pleasure. Mike Cassimont is an associate professor in the Department of Literature at the University of Antwerp in Belgium. You can find a link to the paper we discussed at science.org podcast. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions... Write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. You can listen to the show on the science site at science.org slash podcast, or you can subscribe anywhere you get your podcasts. This show was edited and produced by Sarah Crespi with production help from Podigy, Megan Cantwell, and Joel Goldberg. Transcripts are by Scribby. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started.